Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to LSE, and uh, welcome to this public lecture um, by Professor Danny Dawling of the University of Oxford. Um, I, I will not give a lengthy introduction. I will leave plenty of time for Danny to, to tell you about, about his research, but I, I could just summarize by saying he's probably the most important scholar of inequality in, in the UK at the moment. He's published so many books on the subject that it would take too long for me to to give you the list, but the latest is this book here, Peak Inequality, Britain's Ticking Time Bomb, uh, which is going to be the basis of, of this evening's talk. And I should also let you know that if your interest is piqued, there are copies of the book uh, available outside, and Danny will be signing copies on the stage after, after the talk. So uh, just to quickly give you a rundown of how this is going to work, um, Danny's going to take the floor and talk for a round 35, 40 minutes. Um, I can see we have a, a full house, so we leave some time at the end of the talk for uh, Q&A, for questions from the audience, um, and um, that hopefully will spark a lively and interesting uh, discussion. Um, uh, just give you a, a forewarning that uh, questions need to be questions <laughs> in that session rather than speeches. Um, and that uh, I will invite you all to raise your hands, and I will try and pick people out, but uh, there are a lot of you out there, up there, and I'm, I won't necessarily pick you out in any particular order, uh, um, but I, I will try and get a balanced uh, uh, set of questions from the audience when, when we come to that. Um, otherwise, though, uh, I think uh, the best thing to do is to proceed with, with uh, Danny's talk. So uh, could you please welcome Danny Dawling, and we're really looking forward to hearing him speak. Uh, thank you ever so much for that. I should also say, if you don't want to buy a book, there's a free postcard out the front, so don't, don't miss out on, on that. Um, I began looking at, at this about 10 years ago, 2008, and the first book I wrote about inequality was called Injustice. And since then, I gave my editor a million words, and she cut it down to 100,000. Uh, but since then, I've written 10 books, stupidly, in eight years on this. They are all different. Uh, it's a little bit like Lord of the Rings, but not quite so exciting <laughs> and um, not, not, as, uh, not as lucrative. Um, but the reason for writing so many books on inequality was that it became more and more evident that this thing mattered. And in each one, I put in different evidence and different information that we were just beginning to get and to understand. I'm starting off with a graph, not from peak inequality, but from a book that came out early this year, uh, which shows you some uh, peaks for different countries, because one great misconception people have is that we were always very unequal, and then we had this brief period of more equality, and now we're back to where we were before, and that just isn't the case. Now, the data for the distant past is not good, but essentially human beings oscillate between periods of equality and inequality. We seem never to learn for very long. We get very annoyed when things become very unequal and we do something about it eventually. We then become more equal again. We forget how bad things were. We don't control the greedy. They amass more. We become more unequal until we reach a peak. And we always reach a peak. I won't go through the various dates. Uh, Holland was the most powerful country 
in the world before England. England was the most powerful country in the world before the United States. These were pretty unequal places. But you can now see that the Netherlands is a very equitable place. If any of you ever wondered about the Gini coefficient and what it is, uh, that line about 50 or 0.5, depending on how you measure it, if you have a country with just two households and one has an income of 25,000 a year and the other has an income of 75,000 a year, add them up, you get 100,000. Divide by the difference, that's 50, but it's 0.5. It's the average of the difference between households gives you an approximation. So that's what you're looking at when you look at that 50 line. But the point of starting off with this is to say there are always peaks. Um, it doesn't ever carry on rising forever. But it's easy if you're from, how many are from the USA here? Just to give you an idea who I'm talking to. Welcome and equal people. You're doing, doing better than us. Uh, from the UK? Oh, probably half. Um, Portugal? No? Fairly unequal, not as unequal as us. Israel? Less, some? Less unequal than us. Singapore? Well done. You're more unequal than us. And that's it. Let's try some more equal countries. Uh, France? Congratulations. You are representative from equality tonight. Uh, anybody from Germany? A couple of there. Much more equitable country. There are huge variations uh, across the world. Given the last week, I had to put him up. Um, many things go wrong as you become more and more economically unequal. It is not possible to prove a direct connection between the things that, that go wrong and the level of inequality in a society, but it is very rare that you don't have despots coming to power, that you don't have terrible situations that isn't coincident with high levels and the peak of inequality. People get annoyed. They vote for things they wouldn't normally vote for. And the outcome isn't always good. Here's a couple of examples of uh, what is possible. The little circles are representing Japan. And the y-axis in this graph is a take of the 1%. Uh, Japan is the best example we have of a country that managed to sustain a pretty high level of inequality for quite a long time. When the 1% are taking 18%, when you believe that the emperor is God and that the aristocratic order of things is the way it's supposed to be, um, you'll see Japan plummeting down during the Second World War, and then America came in and basically confiscated the land from the rich and gave it to the poor and created the world's most equitable large country. In recent years, Japanese scholars have been complaining about the terrible rise in inequality in Japan. The terrible rise is that little rise at the bottom, which if you're Japanese is terrible, but honestly you still have one of the most equitable countries in the world. Uh, closer to home, in Germany, you can see the rise in inequality during the 1930s in Germany. And of course, things were blamed on minorities in Germany, in particular on the Jews, 1% of the population in the 1930s. But things were not necessarily wrong 
because of that, for obvious reasons. But this is the worry. At a peak of inequality, your thinking can go badly wrong. And to a much lesser extent than Japan, the victorious allies imposed equality on Germany. Every city was given a function, and Berlin was split in two. I sometimes think for Britain, short of actually putting a wall halfway through London, north-south, splitting the city in half, I can't think of any very fast way. Well, I'll come to that at the end, but a quick way of becoming more equal. Two more countries for you. There is a slow and steady way to become a more equal country. The majority of rich countries in the world are currently becoming more equal by income. That doesn't make news headlines, so you tend not to know about it. The OECD uh, Gini inequality measure for the majority of OECD countries has been falling for several years. Uh, overall world inequality grows, but within countries, poor countries and rich, inequality has been falling recently. But these two countries here, Switzerland and the Netherlands, show you the kind of thing that's possible. And Switzerland is hardly a, you know, dramatically revolutionary country. But they pay their bankers half, half as much as we pay our bankers and they still have a banking sector. Uh, the Netherlands is the most interesting country, I think. It takes a very long time from being one of the richest, the richest place on the planet to become normal. Uh, the Netherlands, in many ways, is now normal. There are other repercussions. I'm showing you the proportion of people walking and cycling to work on the other graph. It's not that one thing causes another. People don't wake up check the level of inequality and they decide they're going to walk to work. It's that in a country that becomes more and more unequal, you have less and less planning. You don't think about things like, wouldn't it be good if people could live nearby to where they work so they don't have to get in a car every day. Um, and the number of relationships we're finding with inequality is quite staggering. The most important one is probably consumption and CO2 emissions. In more unequal countries, the poor consume and pollute much more than the poor in more equal countries, and the rich consume and pollute a huge amount more than in more equal countries. So if you're at all worried about pollution and climate change, you need to worry about economic inequality. The country with the lowest pollution, carbon pollution per head in the rich world is Japan. The country with the highest pollution per head in the rich world is the United States of America. And climate change is probably the most important issue we face at the moment. Uh, this is a little advert for Mary O'Hara's project, Project Twisted at the moment. Uh, things don't get better. I'm going to make a suggestion. It's the main suggestion of this book, my last book on inequality, because I can't write any more but also because I do think we've reached a watershed. But things don't get better just when you reach a watershed. They get better through the efforts of people to make them better. When we look at the past and what actually happened when inequality fell in this country, when inequality fell in the United States, when inequality fell and continued to fall in the Netherlands and in Switzerland, it happens because people agitate for it and argue for it. And Mary's one of those at the moment. She currently lives in Los Angeles. Uh, 
There's a picture of her now, and the small little girl in West Belfast was her as a child. And I'm putting her picture up because I stole a Seamus Healy poem uh, from her website, which says, history says don't hope on this side of the grave, but then once in a lifetime the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. It is easy to get to a point of thinking, it will be this bad for my children and for their children. The rents will always be high, the landlords will always own the property. Those with the posh jobs will get paid more. We're always going to treat people who clean rooms badly. But it never carries on forever. Here's the last peak. There are various ways of measuring the peak, and I'm talking about income, not wealth. We can deal with wealth in the questions, if you like, but this is the gap between people by income. The last peak was around about 1913-14, the last time it was reached a height, and from that height it fell almost every year, right through to the 1970s. These young men had no idea that they were cheering on their cricket team at a point of a change in history. The First World War broke out just a few weeks after that photograph was taken. Uh, anybody from Harrow School here? No, 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 you'd recognise. Uh, they've got the hats and the canes. Uh, if you ever see a photograph and need to know who's from Harrow, hats and the canes. Winston Churchill used to walk around with a cane because he went to Harrow. Uh, the way you get into Harrow is by having a dad who got into Harrow. Hence, the, the man there. The way you get into Eton, you get put down at birth if your father went to Eton, which is great because it's not really a selection test on ability. They like to try and pretend they have an entrance test. Um, but they're those boys at the peak and their mums with quite a lot of bird in their hats. Um, and the reason, I'll show you another picture in a minute, but if you can remember that image, that's where we are now if we're at the peak. It's at that kind of level of confidence or so. I'm arguing we've just passed the peak. The confidence has, if you like, be shattered. Maybe you'd have to go back to 2015, maybe to 2010. It's hard to kind of tell. Um, but the confidence, I don't think, is any, any more there. I have to show you some graphs showing things going up and down if I'm going to talk about a peak. Uh, this red one nearest me is probably the most important. This is the take of the best off 10%. How much income every year do the best off 10 for people get? Around about that last peak, you're looking at almost half, almost half of all income, leaving half to the other 90% in society. And then you can see the equality being gained and gained and gained and gained. Slightly sawtooth, not always down, but generally down. Uh, in the book, I talk about my granddad's life because my granddad was born in 1916 and experienced a world that was becoming fairer and more equal for most of the decades of his life. We find it hard to imagine that because I was born 1968 at the point when it began to turn and then all I can remember from my late childhood through to my adulthood is unfairness increasing, the gaps getting wider, people moaning, complaining, 
saying this is just the way it has to be, this is what the market does. Uh, so you have to go back in time not to see that. Uh, I'm happy to have technical arguments about the peaks of inequality later on, but it'll bore you silly if we do it now. Conservatives like to claim that the peak of inequality was reached in 1990, and since then, equality has risen, because they use a measure that excludes the top 10%. <laughs> and when I say they, I mean Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, in the budget speech. They're not, sh they're not, um, not shy. Um, there's, there's a measure which, it's the, it's the ratio of the median of the top quintile to the median of the bottom quintile. It is, of course, a meaningless measure, given that we're around the top tenth taking 40% of all income. But you can see the wobble at the end. I won't say much about the yellow graph there. That's the take of the 1%, except to, to say that the more and more we look at correlations between inequality and things going wrong, the strongest correlations are with the take of the 1%. Get the 1% down, have the 1% living lives that are nearer to other people, and your country ends up being better governed. And the people who are governing your country are almost always in the 1%. Let's do one more poll. No, I'm not gonna, you're not going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I've never got anybody to say, but there will be. If you're on an income of 160,000, or you're in a couple and you're on 200,000 or more, you are in the 1%. Uh, in London, of course, a larger proportion of people are in the 1% because in many parts of the country, there's hardly anybody in the 1%. And when I say we're governed by people in the 1%, a few years ago, David Cameron, his income, partly because of his wife's handbag kind of business, Nick Clegg, partly because of his wife's lawyering, and Ed Miliband, again, partly because his wife's job, all three of them were well into the 1% by household income. That was the kind of political uh, choice you had in the country. Let's have a go at the 10%. If there's two of you, so you and somebody else are both working, and your household income is 75,000 or more, can you put your hand up? Put my hand up. Thank you, John. Okay, you're young. Right, so that was obviously far less than 10%. In London, the proportion of people who will be in those kinds of houses is more than 10%, but not in the old theatre at the LSE um, on an evening like this. The 10% don't come to these lectures. Um, <laughs> partly because they're struggling. Because on a house of income of 75, 80, 90,000 in London, what kind of a home can you have? You can't get a mortgage for most of London. One problem with inequality being high is that life becomes hard for almost everybody. I once had lunch with an architect who was in the 0.1%, who asked me where the cutoff was, and I told him for the 1%, and his wife told me that can't be true because that would mean that our children are in the 1%, and we're having to help them with their housing costs. But if you try and buy a three-bed house in Fulham, and you're at the bottom of the 1%, you can't actually do it. That's a ridiculous state of things. Um, that figure is wobbling around. HMRC are three years late producing the latest data, but the 1% seem to be taking less. 
Banking incomes seem to have gone down, particularly if you measure them in dollars, because the pound has fallen since the crash. Uh, the banks and the lawyers are moving their young staff to Frankfurt and places very quietly. If you don't have children, and you've been employed in the last few years in Canary Wharf, please could you go off to Europe on the convent or Dublin. There is no need, they don't need to pay the salaries that they were paying before because they're trying to get people to leave London. There is nowhere else in Europe that pays anything like our financial salaries. There's nowhere else to go, so there's no need to pay. The only place in the world that pays the kind of salaries that are paid to people in finance in this city is New York, and the Americans want to keep their jobs. So at the top, you'll begin to see falls in the banking salaries. More importantly, you're actually seeing the pay of top CEOs, the 100 top CEOs in Britain, two years in a row. Their average remuneration has fallen. Fallen by a million, million pounds on average last year. And the wonderful news was it wasn't greeted as wonderful news. I thought it was wonderful because it's the first time in my life this has happened, and I'm a bit nerdy. But the newspaper reports of CEO pay falling was they're still paid far too much. And that's the kind of anger that you need. You can go higher up. Uh, you can look at the incomes of the super rich. The way you do that is you take their wealth measured this year by the Southern Times Rich List and subtract their wealth measured the year before. And the difference between wealth has to be income. If you don't get wealthy without money coming in, measure that in dollars and you can see it's falling. But to save um, boring you of any more stats, the best, ah, comes up in a minute, the best evidence that we have is what's happening at the very, very top and why we can say it. Before I get to that, same cricket match, same hats, same canes, just 20 odd years later, a far too overused photograph. Uh, but notice that the boys are now nervous. Um, they're not sure what's happening and the, the boys who are being paid to take pillows so they can sit on the pillows because cricket takes an awfully long time are looking cocky. The bad news for you is that even if we are at a peak of inequality, as I think we are, in general, the next 20 years is not that great. Coming down from a peak doesn't suddenly mean you hit utopia. It means you're still at a very high level of inequality. You still have these boys were living in poverty. These boys were wearing unnecessary clothes because that was thought what you needed to do to run an empire. Um, it took a lot longer to get us through to the 1960s, 1970s. There's the picture I wanted. Uh, this picture is worth a thousand graphs of inequality. Um, he was the highest paid person in Britain until earlier this year when he had a dispute with his employer and he no longer works for them. Let's put it that way because he can afford very, very expensive lawyers. Um, one other thing I'll say ab about Martin Sorrell, and I currently, my best date for the peak of inequality is the point at which he resigned. That's the date I'm using. Uh, there's a lovely article in The Economist magazine about the problems of being very rich. And one thing it details in great detail is the effect on you of taking very many flights in private aeroplanes and what it actually does to your skin. And whenever I see... <laughs> Whenever I see Martin, um, I think it's wrong, wrong to be envious of the very, very rich. Um.
But that, that, I've saved you about 20 graphs by just showing you that picture of the peak. Now, if he suddenly is reinstated somewhere else next week, although there isn't a bigger advertising company in the world to work for, and his salary is higher, I'll be wrong. But we're seeing all kinds of signs of this at the top. Director Generals of the BBC paid far less than before, and pay gaps being exposed. Next year's gender pay gaps have to be lower than this year's. That's the point of publishing them every year. We only published this year for the first time. The book has seven sections, and I'm going to run out of time. So I've got a couple of slides for each section. I'll just to give you a summary. There's a section on politics. And all of them are hinting at what are the kind of things that might bring you to think that we could actually be at a peak that times are strange. This was a tweet from Fraser Nelson sent on the 9th of June. Um, and you can read, it says, Jeremy Corbyn has just increased Labour's share of the vote more than any other leader in any other election since Attlee in 45. Now, if you're being really pedantic about it, it's actually better than Attlee in 45 because Attlee had 10 years since 1935, whereas Corbyn's swing was just over a couple of years. At times of peak inequality, you have strange ideas of what's just happened in history. Uh, I'll just take you to the end, although the ones who do well are Attlee and Wilson. After 18 years of Conservative rule, there was a swing to Labour that was quite big. Let's just put it like that. It had a lot to do with 18 years of Conservative rule. I was there. It had a little bit to do with a man who likes wearing cufflinks and who was very good at grinning called Tony Blair. And that's the rise. Tony Blair's next two elections show what happens if you put Tony Blair in front of the electorate without 18 years of Conservative rule. Negative and negative. He then put Gordon Brown in front of the electorate, admittedly with the world's largest financial crash since 1929, it wasn't just Gordon, even more negative. You put nice Ed Miliband in front of the electorate and you get 1.4% swing. Very good. In, in comparison to the others, very good, just not enough. And you put a doddery old man who can't string a speech together, who is hated by his party and divided by the press, and you get that. And what you get is a reaction that says, oh, but he's still awful, isn't he? And you can just look and look at the numbers. Um, this graph is showing you the segregation index of conservative voters. People often talk about how segregated the different groups in society. Um, but the biggest segregation is the rich and the poor. Segregation was very high when in income inequality was high in the 1920s and 30s. The country came together. There were Tories everywhere. You could just knock on the door on your street and you'd find a Tory. Uh, and then the uh, segregation rose and rose and rose. October 1974 was the key date. If you want to worry about when did we start becoming more unequal, it was October 1974. And it hit a peak in 2015 with Cameron. And then for the first time since October 1974, the segregation of index of Tory voters comes down. For the first time the rise in the Labour vote was not stronger in already Labour voting areas. Under Jeremy Corbyn, the biggest swing to Labour was not in the areas that were most solidly Labour. This doesn't fit your normal way of thinking. You say, oh, you've got to present somebody like Tony Blair. Middle England would like Tony Blair. Turns out Middle England doesn't switch away from the Conservatives until you stick Jeremy Corbyn in front of them. Political segregation, there's London's local elections. It's an unfair map because it's a normal map. Grenfell Tower gets the same amount of space as one small mansion block in Belgravia. So we really ought to 
make the inland larger, but basically that's what political segregation looks like. The, the blue and the red don't mix. Uh, and all I'd say on that, if you look at the commentary on the local elections where Labour did very well, try and spot Barnet. That's all I say. Yeah, try and spot Barnet. Was Barnet really that important? I'll, I'll leave it up for a few more seconds if anybody is convinced that the most important thing in the local elections was Barnet. Um, but anyway, it's an inside left wing kind of a joke. <laughs> in Oxfordshire, the biggest swing to Labour was West Oxfordshire, Cameron's old constituency. In Oxford, Labour gained seats and so on. Third section of the book, and quickly on, peaks in housing. Ben Hennig and I drew this map in August 2016, almost two years ago. It's the first map of the falls in housing prices across the country. Of course, it was completely denied back in 2016 that houses were going down in value, but that's the country shaped by the drop in equity. It was a very small drop then, but it's when the peak of the housing market was reached, shortly after the Brexit vote. It's been going down and down since then. If you want to know how far it can go, remember London's one of the most expensive cities in the world at the moment. If you look at the peak in Amsterdam, when house prices peaked in Amsterdam several centuries ago, they fell in real terms for 250 years. Now, you're in London now, people say, there's no way house prices can fall much further in London. This property's worth so much, right? <laughs> 250 years of house price falls from the peak. Doesn't have to take 250 years. Tokyo managed to halve in a couple of years. You'd need some kind of event that meant that suddenly people didn't want to be in London. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> How could you engineer that? How would you, what kind of genius has worked out how to do this? Um, I always like this cartoon. I don't know. I'd love to know who drew it. It's very simple. Um, but even the very rich now, rather than the losers, are beginning to worry about the value, the value of their equity. And part of the fear... Part of the fear, one reason why the colleges in Oxford with land are suddenly trying to sell their land on the edge of the city, is we have an opposition party which has a commitment to purchase land on the edge of cities at agricultural prices. Colleges, Christchurch, St John's of my university, who've held on to land for four or five hundred years are getting rid of it now. Because even if you think the chance for Labour government is only five percent, holding on to that land which might be bought at agricultural price really would be a very stupid investment decision to make. And similarly, if you're a kind of mini-oligarch criminal from Nigeria or from Russia or from Saudi Arabia and in the bottom of your 15 million wealth you've gone and bought something for 2 million in London which you intend to keep forever, when you begin to hear rumours that there might be a government that might come in, that might tax that empty, empty property so it's not worth your while holding it, what do you do? Do you find somewhere else in the world that might be a bit safer than London? Demography, fourth part of the book. Um, there are many peaks. I'm showing you a global peak there for anybody interested in what's happening worldwide. The peak in the rate of growth of human beings was around about 1968-71. Since then, we're still growing in terms of the number of people, but we are decelerating. The little inset shows an acceleration and a deceleration. 
this is all fascinating to nerds, but, but we'll skip on. The other, re the other graph is showing the average age at which women have birth, have babies. Uh, and it's a rare example of something not yet peaking. Now it has to peak. There is a biological limit to how old you can get before you have your first baby. But as yet, and don't worry about the fact it ends in 2011, I've checked up to the latest data. As yet, no peak. Why does it do this? It does this because back then the most common job in England was to be a servant and you can't have a baby if you're living in the attic of your master's house. We become more equal. There are other reasons, but the average age of having children goes down. And then emancipation, education, but also inequality. Uh, in London, particularly where I live in Oxford, a large proportion of the population cannot have children because they cannot afford a home in which you could have a child because of inequality. When we see that begin to come down, then we can see families actually changing. Education peaks. Introducing the highest student fees on the planet and then finding out that you couldn't increase them anymore. And again, having an opposition party that has promised to end fees and lows on the day after it takes office. There isn't a more effective political message to tell a generation of people. Remember, half of all young women have gone to university. Most of them have a loan, if they've gone, particularly large loan, if they went after 212. Every year, the number of people sitting there with loans rises. And you can vote to cancel, we're not, that's a separate thing. You can certainly vote for it not to be inflicted on your children or another generation. And if you end fees and loans, you've got to cancel a large amount of debt. There's no other way of doing it. Uh, the graph is there for anybody bored of listening to me that shows one reason why the United States and the UK can become so unequal. Because when you become more and more unequal, you get worse and worse at maths. Um, and it's... <laughs> we're finding more and more things are connected. You get really good grades. We give out really good grades for maths. We just don't teach it in a way that means that when the OECD do a maths test to people at the age of 24, they can actually do maths. But you've got an A for GCSE. Health. Just one slide on health. Uh, this is the data that came out in June, showing a 5% absolute rise in mortality, having taken into account changes in age and sex. Uh, this data was released by ONS six weeks after Jeremy Hunt said that there was no rise in mortality. Um, we have the biggest health crisis the country has had outside the Second World War. We've had infant mortality rising for three years now. We have one of the lowest life expectancies in Europe, and it is currently falling. Uh, in 1990, our neonatal mortality rate was the seventh best in Europe. By 2015, we're the 19th best plummeting down at the current rate in which we're going, it won't take too many years for us to do worse than Romania. That and how much do you read about that? You don't read much about it. But hey, the USA is worse. <laughs> <laughs> and infant mortality is rising in Texas. The last section of the book is about the future. And I'm going to go through this in just five minutes so we've got enough time um, to do questions for you to quiz me about why I think things are happening now and about how do you ensure it gets better. This is the most optimistic, of course, part of the book. And the trick in this part of the book is, and that's an old trick, you try and pretend you're living 100 years in the future 
and think how people might describe now. And the way you start to do it is you look back 100 years from now to 1918 and think, can people have imagined the kind of changes that have happened? But we can do it far shorter than that. When I was at school, uh, people were caned. Child abuse was legal. Uh, that was banned in state schools, but those paying for the privilege to go to a private school managed to carry on being caned uh, for quite a long time until we actually said it was illegal to do the same thing in private schools. Um, the amount of change you get in 100 years is absolutely, absolutely enormous. But we have a tendency to say things can't change, even when they've changed quite quickly. Uh, the front cover of the book... There's a picture of some pigs that explains to you where uh, the pigs come from and what the pigs were doing. On the night when the pigs were jaunting around London uh, annoying the police, David Cameron was telling people at Lord Mayor's Feast that he now has an opportunity to begin to refashion the EU so it better serves this nation's interests. That kind of arrogance, that kind of arrogance you only see in very unequal countries. Politicians in more equal countries are modest and careful, partly because they know that their electorate are more able and clever. And that's the sad fact of life. Predictions. I don't think Europe will be called West Asia in 100 years' time, but you never know. Uh, economically, Europe is going back to the kind of size it was 400 years ago. Not a great disaster. Europe only got this rich by exploiting the rest of the world. Um, but one reason we have a continent called Europe, which if you look at the world map you'll realise isn't a continent, is because of power. Click through. There are lots of things that are strange at the moment. If you go to Berlin and you walk through Berlin, you'll see statues, but none of the statues are of triumphant military heroes. They're statues of women and children crying for war and memorials to what is terrible. If you go to Westminster Abbey, you essentially have a kind of Narnia picture of people who've killed lots of people. That is what the British do. If you go out of here towards Parliament and look at who we put statues up of. Uh, my favourite statue of all is the statue of Cecil Rhodes in Oxford, the highest statue above the high street of my home city put there so you can see it from every bus if you come in from Blackbird Lees of a man who we're fairly sure is a paedophile looking as if he's about to step out and drop off the edge of the building and we defend this statue we defend it being there and I, I think these are so, some of the signs of what's quite remarkable about our times now education <laughs> I only have to put a picture of him up to get a laugh. <laughs> My favourite Eton boy is Boris. Um, I'm amazed that we talk about privileged education, as if it's privileged to be kept up cramming till 10 at night so that you'll get an A in your geography A level, so you have a one in three chance of getting into Oxford and Cambridge. Um, I'm amazed that we don't question the A-stars and all these other things. We now have ones, thank to go thanks to Gove. Was it nine is the highest, isn't it? Nine and eight. Um, I won't read through that because we're running out of time, but we have the most segregated education system in Europe in this country. 
It is deeply embarrassing, deeply inefficient. It produces a population. It's not just the poor who are innumerate and unimaginative. It is those who have the most spent on them who do the kind of things that this man did because that's what he was taught and brought up to do. The reason you quote a poem at a temple in what was Burma about a soldier kissing a girl, not a woman, a girl, the reason you think it's funny to quote that poem is because of your upbringing and your privileged education. I won't say more about education, but if you want to talk about it later, I'm very happy to. There's a lot that can get so much better. On the mainland of Europe, private schools are very rare. People do better overall at school. You go to the nearest school in most cases. You are friends with the children on the streets you grow up on. It works. Um, but when you become very unequal, in our case, we have the most expensive private school system in the world outside of Chile. And in the United States, you fund your schools by local taxation for counties because you're trying to outdo the British as far as segregation can go. Right. Housing. One of the fastest ways to improve the living standards of everybody, almost everybody in this country, is to control the price of housing. At the moment, the price is coming down in London. There's a small tidal wave. It's just currently past Chippenham. It's heading towards Bristol, if you like looking at house prices and see it going down. Uh, before it goes down, the number of sales drops to a quarter of what it was last year. That's part of what we're, we're seeing at the moment. That helps, but you also need to regulate rents, which is what they do over most of the continent. You need to bring the cost of housing, rents and mortgages down every year, 1%, 2% a year, for 30 years, to get to the kind of level people pay for their housing in Germany or most of the mainland. That is the most effective way of increasing living standards. The money that you're paying for your housing, the money you pay to your landlord, isn't used by your landlord to put nicer paint on your house. It's used to pay for cruises. It's used to amass wealth. It's used to pay for school fees that aren't needed. Last graph. If you think things are impossible, there's no money, this is a series of countries in Europe. This is the proportion of GDP that's spent on public services. It's almost equivalent to the proportion of GDP that's taxed. In effect, you're looking at the tax rates in these countries. An abnormal country like the United Kingdom is taxing around about 36, 37%. A normal country taxes around about 50, 45%. If you want a good health service, if you want good schools, if you want the roads to be safe, if you basically want to be more civilised, that's what you have to do. As far as we can see, even in the countries that spend the most publicly, such as Finland, things don't go wrong. We haven't yet had a country that's become so, unequal, so equal that you begin to see inefficiencies from it. We need, we need some of these countries to become even more equal just to work out what the limit is. We are heading down... There, these are the cuts that are in process and still to come. And the gap between the Labour and Tory manifestos is about 1.5 percentage points. So it doesn't even get us up to Spain. And we spend our entire time arguing over that tiny little gap 
And that's the Corby Manifesto. It, you can have a different system. None of these countries are basket cases. They all have higher life expectancy and lower infant mortality than we do. It all comes to an end eventually. There's a chapter in a book, my favourite chapter, called Eat the Rich, um, which is about a satirical 1980s TV show doing a parody about what might happen in the future that actually did happen in the future. But the inequality comes and it falls. As you may realise, often it falls with something like an enormous crash or more often a war. My view is that Brexit is by far the softest kind of disaster you could engineer. You may think Brexit is terrible, but if you were trying to set something up that was likely to split apart the ruling part of the elite, help the housing market fall, make people be willing to think that you need some other way of governing inside the country, uh, Brexit is not a bad thing. I'm a Remainer, but I had a horrible feeling that if we hadn't actually had this vote for Brexit, inequality under Cameron, who would have stayed, could have carried on rising for some time to come. If we hadn't had Brexit, we'd now have grammar schools. Imagine all the things the Conservatives would have done if they hadn't been spending all this time attacking each other. Um, it's, not all, it's not all bad. We'd have a fully privatised NHS by now. Um, you know, when you say it's terrible, the government can't do anything because of Brexit, that's really good news. <laughs> this is my last slide. Um, and it's some text I wrote back in May 2016 and I put it as the last chapter of the book about a quarter of the book is completely new the other three quarters of things written in the last five years because so much has changed in the last five years I wrote it in May 2016 and it was published by a, a Labour Party blog I'm not a Labour Party member but they agreed to publish this thing which says basically Corbyn isn't too bad you can read the text at the end of that there I won't read it out for you but the people editing the Labour Party blog so hated Jeremy Corbyn that they decided to give my piece a satirical title why Corbyn's moral clarity could propel him to number 10, hoping readers would think that I was a complete idiot for what I was writing about how he wasn't completely useless. The fact he had lowest expenses in Parliament might be an advantage, and so on. And the irony, and the reason I've ended the book with this, is that it's no longer a satirical title. But much more importantly, it doesn't have to be him. The politics have shifted. Everything has shifted. The Conservatives are now talking about three-year tenancies. They're talking about how we have to increase taxes, who might have to pay for it. They've increased taxes on landlords. The politics has already started shifting to the left. When we became more unequal in the 1970s, the politics began to shift to the right. The Labour government of Tony Blair enacted things that the Conservative government of Margaret Thatcher would never have managed to get away with. They had much lower tax rates than Margaret Thatcher had at the start of her period. All the three political parties moved to the right again and again and again. In the last couple of years, we've watched the beginning of the shift to the left, and we don't see it because we're in the middle of it. We're part of it, and we're moving with it. And so you think, nothing's happening, it's terrible, it's all the same. But you have to try to remember what things were like a few years ago to realise, in fact, they are beginning to change. There is hope. 
and it is possible. The bad news is that at the kind of rate that this normally happens, by an absolute disaster, you are looking at two or three decades before you even become an averagely unequal European country. But the benefit of becoming an averagely unequal European country is that you become Switzerland. Uh, and on that, I'll stop. Well, thank you, Danny. Um, you pull no punches in your analysis, so hopefully that will have stirred uh, a few, few questions up from the audience. Uh, the way I'm going to proceed is I'm going to take questions in bunches or two. Uh, that helps us get more questions in the half an hour or so that we have. Uh, as I said before, please ask a question rather than you know, a statement the length of a Shakespearean sonnet. Um, and um, I will attempt, to, as I said before, to uh, positively discriminate against uh, people who don't like, look like me. Uh, sorry, in favor of people who don't look like me. So uh, um, uh, a younger, more female, more di diverse set of questions, if, if you put your hands up. And if you think I've unfairly uh, missed you, then it's because my eyesight isn't terribly good and I'm trying the hardest I can. Great, there are roaming mics, so I will point, point people out, uh, and I will um, try and take people from the top and the bottom of the theater, so if you wait for the mic to arrive and then pose your question. So shall we start with um, the lady just there to, to your right and the gentleman on the other side of the aisle if we take these two questions first. Thank you very much for sharing. Uh, I'm from Hong Kong, which is probably the second highest Gini coefficient city in the world with a 0.539 yep. Gini coefficient. So I have two questions. The first one is, uh, do you think education, uh, higher education specifically, is uh, alleviating or aggregating inequality? And the second question is, uh, what's your view on affirmative action? Thank you. Hi, many thanks for the talk. Um, you touched on it very briefly, but I was wondering if you could expand a bit on the link between inequality and environmental uh, degradation, and whether you had any examples of countries that were, that were more equal um, and their environmental policies and specifically the material footprint of, of their average citizens. Okay. Thank I'll, you. I'll do those two. Um, I, I think higher education uh, tends to increase equality. Uh, it's very hard to measure the proportion to people who are in it, but I think it went up more in the more uh, equal countries first. Uh, one reason, though, it should increase equality in the long term is if you have 50% of young women in this country with a degree, they'll soon work out they can't all get in the top 1%. But you're also told that you're clever enough to have a degree, you're not subservient. Uh, there are currently attempts to reduce the number of people going to university in this country because people in favor of inequality uh, realize that if you let everybody go to university, they might decide when they get average jobs that they're not happy with the situation, and average jobs need, need to be better. Um, affirmative action, I'm in favor of it, but it tends to not be needed in more equal countries. Uh, by definition, people are in a much better situation. The, the differences between them are much less. 
racial differences are greatest in the most unequal countries. Racial differences are in some ways only maintained by economic inequality. If people are paid very similar amounts of money, they mix and you begin not to notice there are racial groups. The classic example is Iceland, which is a country of former slave owners who are the Vikings and their slaves to the Celts. And now talk about a single Icelandic genome. Japan had many different ethnic groups in the 1920s and 30s, and groups who identified as caste groups by aristocratic position, that just goes. Whereas the United States, it is not simply slavery, it is also income inequality and maintaining that that keeps the difference. Uh, over policies, again in Japan, if you're in a house on the street, in some cases you can find 30 different recycling bins at the end of the street. And you take your rubbish down and sort it out into those. The rate at which people drive has been dropping, I think, for 30 years now. Fewer and fewer cars each year because public transport gets better, the population move into urban areas and don't give up having a car. Uh, but in Germany, business people travel by train. Uh, they don't fly because it doesn't make sense to fly. Whereas I have a student from China who recently went to Glasgow for the first time and took that Richard Branson train down from Glasgow and was horrified and said she was almost sick compared to the, tr the trains in China. I mean, we think it's a good idea to have a train system run by a man living on an island in the Caribbean. You, know, you, couldn't, make, you, couldn't, you couldn't make it, make it up. Um, but it's not just policy, it's people's behaviour. In an unequal country, you feel compelled to buy more, to show that you're respectable through the clothes you're wearing. You're more easily fooled by adverts. Spending on advertisement is much higher. It's 4% of GDP in the US, 2% here, 1% on most of the mainland. And so you end up wasting your money on things you don't really need and polluting more. Whereas if you're in a more similar situation to your peers, you don't have to worry about whether you've got the right brand of trainers quite as much. And, it, and it's that kind of uh, difference to behaviour that really, really increases the pollution. Right, another couple. Um, so, uh, at the back there, and, oh, hi, one of my students, great. That was not discrimination, by the way, it was purely random. <laughs> and and uh, over there at the back, too, in the pink. Fire away. Okay, great. So this is a bit self-interested on my part, but obviously the U.S. is seen as one of the worst examples of inequality. And I was wondering if you would also say it's at its peak or if you think it's actually just going to get worse from here. Thank you. Another one back there. Hello. Um, do you think um, immigration from the EU, 3 million over the last 10, 15 years, has increased or decreased inequality because it's clear you, you used to be in Sheffield that a lot of big cities in the north who felt ravaged mm. by Thatcher and onwards um, clearly felt that uh, people were sharing a smaller and smaller pot yeah. and reacted accordingly uh, with Brexit. Okay. Um, I'd like to know your okay. views on that. Right. Uh, on the US, the US is unusual in that European countries began to become more equal in the 20s and 30s after the Russian Revolution in particular, it wasn't just the First World War. 
after the First World War cost Europe a lot. It didn't cost the US very much at all. The US inequality stayed very high until 1945 and then became, so it's later. Um, the worry is that inequality is really expensive, but the US is the hegemonic power of the world and extremely rich, and in a way can, of, can afford it, uh, if it can afford enough people to think it's great and they might have to pay death taxes. Whereas the UK, I mean, honestly, trying to keep this level of the highest, the most unequal country of Europe, uh, is we need to have bring in money to afford this inequality, and we're about to discover what our true worth is. And the wonderful thing about Brexit is it's a kind of market test. You know, we can talk about how great we are, but we're going to be quietly going this summer going, okay, here's our white paper. And they're going to go, how much fish have you got? Um, the reason I mention fish is that the only other country to leave the EU is Greenland. And they spent three years negotiating that because Greenland had fish. <laughs> anyway... I won't say any more, we're going to find out very soon what we're worth um, and how polite. The US, there's no reason why it can't carry on for a bit longer and it currently is on that trajectory with Trump's tax cuts for the rich and a kind of adoration of, of him that you see from certain quarters. Um, but there are no, th these things, when you look at the patterns over history, uh, they really, there isn't a set thing that has to happen. It, it can change in very different ways. It simply takes a particular set of events. In the Netherlands, it was actually a group of parents who were really angry about the death rate of children on the roads who protested in the 70s. Um, but one reason why the UK became more unequal in the 70s, unlike the Netherlands, was that we lost a massive source of income that we didn't know we had. Uh, so we didn't teach ourselves this. We, we told ourselves that our problem was partly immigrants, and it was the trade unions, it was the British disease. We lost all these colonies. We told ourselves that the colonies were a burden, and we governed them at a loss. But from the point that the last colony went, people began to divide inside the country and to keep standards of living in the South High. We began to abandon the North and the poor. And that's a particular story of why inequality rose so much here. But I can't tell you when, when it will fall. You could have fought with Obama. That should have been the fall. But he turned out not to be somebody that bothered about the rate. He just wanted to keep it there and be nicer to people. We need a bit more anger uh, first. Trump may be doing a good job with um, all this upsetting trade deals around the world and so on. If you're trying to accelerate the fall in the rank of the United States, this is one of the best ways to do it. China, you know, is about to test the US and see what happens if you send fewer washing machines. You try and build your own washing machines. Does it actually work? Uh, <laughs> it's, an, it's an interesting thing to watch from, from the side. Um, Immigration tends to be higher in more unequal countries. But the US has a very high rate of immigration uh, because there are lots of jobs at the bottom. People don't just cross over from Mexico because there's something to cross over for. Um, we have a very high rate of immigration because there were lots of jobs for young Europeans here. And they get a bit bored of more equal countries. There are disadvantages to equality. 
you know, Finland's wonderful, the schools are great, everything's wonderful, it's the only part of Europe with homelessness falling and so on. But it's a bit boring. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody's solved the problem of boredom and, and equality. Um, but in a very unequal country, you have many skiving jobs at the bottom and many opportunities for immigrants. And you get a higher rate of immigration. In a more equal country, unless you go out of your way, as the Scandinavian countries did, to get in immigrants, because they're being nice, uh, the rate of, of immigration tends to be less because there's nothing to come for. Because you don't have those very badly paid jobs at the bottom. And you also don't allow people to come in. You've got to remember some of our richest people in the country are also immigrants. You don't have non-DOM deals where you don't pay tax and, and come in because we think it's wonderful to have billionaires in this country. Thanks. Um, so a gentleman down here um, and um, uh, over there uh, towards the back, gentleman in the white shirt. Yes, you. Not behind you, you. Okay, please. Thanks very much. It's most interesting. Is it fair to say that those of us born during the last war have had the best of it by dint of what you've explained there? And when Britain was colonizing, did we export inequality? And if so, is there still a legacy in those colonies, ex-colonies? Well, that's interesting. No, uh, if it was you, you didn't have the best. My granddad in 1916 had the best um, because the 20s and 30s were actually much more equal than the period before. We tend to think of them as terrible, um, but things were getting together. And also, he wasn't around for now, and now's awful. Uh, my granddad phoned... <laughs> And I'll tell you why it is awful. Uh, but my granddad phoned me up. He's, he's now, he died at 96, but shortly before he died, he phoned me up to ask if he was in heaven. I said, what's happened? And he was partly phoning me up because he thought I wouldn't be, and then you know, he knew he wasn't either. Um, but he'd just been called and, and offered a choice of when he wanted his operation by the NHS. And he said, what? I've got nothing else to do. Why are they giving me a choice? And he literally thought he'd died and gone to heaven. He had the best. Now, we have this with rapidly rising death rate of people in their 70s and 80s. Um, people who've lost meals on wheels, lost rural bus services, numbers of adult social workers visiting the elderly is halved. Um, so the generation who are currently doing worse are middle class people, because they've got to 79, 80, 84, who probably voted for Margaret Thatcher in 1979 and are now living in rural England um, and have a problem. And their children aren't there because they're middle class, the children have gone away. So you're okay if you're born during the Second World War as long as you've got some kind of support network. But the minute something goes wrong, your ambulance to A&E, you're the five-hour wait, the bed's blocked because somebody rather like you's blocking the bed. In Oxford, our highest mortality rate is now Headington Ward. No longer the council estates on the edge, but Hennington, the posh, it's a part of the city I can't afford to live in. And the reason the highest mortality rate is Hennington is because of women dying in hospitals who have no other address because there's nowhere for them to actually go out of the hospital anymore. Uh, and that is a remarkable situation. I was in A&E last year in the John Radcliffe and they kept me overnight and I got to see what happens on Monday morning at the John Radcliffe Hospital, which is that families who've managed to look after their elderly parent all weekend turn up with somebody barely breathing, and the trolleys went all the way out of the front of the hospital, and that's every Monday morning at the John Radcliffe Hospital, and this is people of that age. If you're lucky, 
it's okay. But if you're not, it's awful. Um, and that's why we're having um, the rises. And, and the tragedy is that, the tragedy is that as far as I can see, Jeremy Hunt and his colleagues who must know the figures, they're not that stupid, look at this and, and it's rather like 1980s where we talked about unemployment being a price worth paying. There's letter in London Review of Books that says that the increase in mortality since 2012 is the same as having a 7-7 attack every day. And then since ONS released the latest data in June, it's like a, add to that a 9-11 attack every month. Um, so I wouldn't say um, you, need, you need to make sure there's somebody there for you because the state isn't there for you now. Great. So the question over there, and do we have somewhere else? Okay, yeah, young lady there next. Thank you. Hi, Danny. Uh, you've presented some really compelling data um, over here. Some really compelling data on um, why, you've, why you've predicted that inequality is going gonna, is gonna to fall over the, next, over the next few years, even if it falls slowly. But what do people who have seen that same data but disagree with your predictions say to you? And why are they wrong? Very good question. Um, yeah, over there. Um, thanks for the talk. Um, you mentioned briefly bankers' pay. Um, do you think that in a more equal society, jobs like carers, teachers, the kind of vital public service roles are valued more, and, and how does that change kind of happen? Okay. Um, there are lots of people who disagree with me. Uh, what they tend to say is the peak happened earlier because they're not including the very richest that I include because it's, it's quite important. Those who disagree with me the other way, who think we should become and will become more unequal, uh, don't say anything that much out loud because they know that if you say you're in favour of greater inequality, most people won't like you. So they're quite quiet. But George Osborne, George Osborne for years um, was, had policies to increase the price of housing in London, help to buy. Um, the Treasury saw the price of housing in London as a measure of economic success. The most economically successful cities on the planet are the most expensive to live on. But they don't tell people that. They pretend they're sympathetic about the price of housing. The other group who disagree with me say, I'm not taking into, into account how much worse things are going to get for people on universal credit. And we haven't reached a peak because it'll get worse at the bottom. Um, we have 130,000 children who are homeless every Christmas now. It's the highest we've had it for a long, long time. But they just say that can increase. So I get criticism by not ignoring the bottom. I get a lot of criticism. It's useful uh, because, you know, you, you don't know. And it's in a way it is silly to try to call a peak. Um, the peaks and the trough are very wobbly over time. They're hard. When you really know things are changing is when you're on those slopes. When you're becoming dramatically more equal, it is obvious and there's no way of changing it because you get used to the taste of greater equality. People at the top stop asking for more money. And the same, when you're on the way up, it's obvious. The peaks and the troughs are difficult. The valuing of people... Um, this is one of the remarkable things of our times. I do a talk like this in the Said Business School in Oxford uh, to people who are doing MBAs in business administration. And they're paying quite a lot of money to do an MBA. And I talk about inequality ratios and what's fair. And after about an hour and a half, I can convince them 
that an 8 to 1 ratio is a maximum of fairness. But they're only convinced this within their own sector, which is finance, that nobody should be paid more than eight times more than somebody else. They all believe still that they should be paid much more than medics because people who are working in finance are much more valuable than people working in medicine. And, and that's one of the symptoms, I think, of inequality, that you can have that kind of view. Um, but you must, you know, I wouldn't do an MBA in business administration. You must think that this, this is the most valuable thing on the planet, I guess, uh, to want to do it. It will change because these things are temporary. You don't, you don't stay in this state for very long. One of the dragons in Dragon's Den, I forget which one, was talking about how he was helping his daughter out because she wanted to be a nurse. But he was going to give her a load of money because you'd never expect anybody to live on that. And he said it on Dragon's Den as if this was a good thing. What a charitable thing he was doing, subbing his own daughter so she could be a nurse. Whereas the problem was he was supporting a society in which we think it's fine for nurses not to be able to afford to live. The place you're going to see this most acutely is London. A third of the midwives are EU citizens here, but not UK citizens. Because it's exciting and it's fun, and you come to London for a couple of years as a midwife or a nurse, but you couldn't possibly stay. So we've managed to keep London going by migration of skilled professionals from the EU. And we're just going to discover, and we're, we're essentially going to have to pay somebody enough money to be able to live and possibly have their own family to be able to deliver other people's babies. And, you know, this is the situation we are approaching. Brexit, in a way, makes it easier to become more equal because one way we managed to maintain our inequalities was by importing labour educated at somebody else's expense that we didn't pay for and having them working temporary at low wages uh, for us. And at the same time, exporting a large number of our elderly people to be looked after by somebody else's health service somewhere sunny abroad. And who are going to be the very first people who are going to start coming back? The very first people to come back will be the people who fall ill in Spain. The minute you feel ill, you begin to think you've got a serious illness in Spain, you get on the plane and you come back to Britain. If you're healthy, you stay out there. I mean, it's, forget the unfair deal about how we weren't paying our fair rate because Margaret Thatcher signed the opt-out. The real unfair thing about our relationship with the EU was that we imported so many of their young, well-qualified and fit, and thin, by the way, um, and we exported... Uh, are elderly. David Cameron's and Nick's dad, Nick Clegg's dad were both out in France. The Finn thing, I should just say, I've seen two interesting correlations with the Leave vote. One is with deprivation. The correlation of areas how much they voted Leave and deprivation is 0 0.03. It was not poor people voting out. 0 0.03. The correlation with obesity and Leave is 0.8. Now, it is not that fat people are natural leavers. <laughs> right? what it, and I, I, feel, I feel I'm not being prejudiced because I've deliberately put on weight so I can make this point. <laughs> um, it, 
what it really is is the correlation with immigration. Wherever there are large numbers of immigrants, people don't vote leave. Immigrants, younger, healthier, fitter, thinner. They bring the obesity rates down, but they also have an effect on everybody else around them. Because, you know, you do feel a bit larger uh, walking around Oxford than you do, say, walking around Sheffield if you're the same size, and you might eat one less burger. Right, let's go back up to, okay, so we have quite, sorry, you've been very neglected in the last round of questioning. So uh, there are a couple of questions uh, on that side. So um, gentleman just there, uh, another, another one alongside him, and uh, I'll try to get uh, back to you in the next rounds. Um, just a very quick one. What's the effect of um, offshore tax havens and tax avoidance, of, especially of the top 1%? You said that's the important correlation. So if you had proper taxation of that 1%, how far does that get you to somewhere a bit more sensible? Okay. Can you pass it next to you? Yeah. Uh, what's your opinion of the argument that inequality doesn't matter as long as everyone is getting at least a little bit richer? Yeah. Okay. On the taxation, uh, Thomas Piketty and Tony Atkinson produced a wonderful graph a few years ago uh, showing that th those countries which maintained their relatively high top tax rates saw very little increase in the money taken by the top 1%, whereas countries like the UK and the USA, which dropped their tox top tax rates to 40%, 45%, saw a huge increase in the amount of money that the top 1% we're taking. So tax is the most important weapon when you're trying to avoid inequality uh, rising. And that's just a tax we know people pay. Um, the tax that people don't pay, people are much more likely not to pay tax in countries with low tax um, because you get into the idea that tax is bad. In more equal countries, Sweden's famous because you can see all your neighbours' tax records. Uh, so if they've got a very large car outside, you can check the tax they're paying and you can shop them um, if you think they're stealing. Um, you know, you worry about being mugged. Uh, everybody not paying their tax is mugging you. That's why the health service has the trolleys going all the way out the back. Uh, the wonderful thing about taxation is that it happens to everybody, so nobody loses out, but I, I can go on and on about this. One reason for Brexit, when you look at the funding for Brexit and who the Brexiteers are, is they were very concerned about uh, the European Union trying to control the tax evasion. We are the country that, through the Privy Council, uh, provides shelter for the majority of the world's tax havens. We're it. And it's not just all the small islands in the Caribbean and Jersey and Guernsey and Isle of Man, it's here in the City of London. And what they want is the world's largest offshore tax haven with a hard Brexit. Um, that's what keeps um, Jacob Rees-Mogg happy, is the idea that this might be possible. And then there'll be some trouble. The second question, if everybody's getting a little bit, uh, is inequality a bad thing? It's much easier to maintain inequality when there are rises. Um, because you can tell people at the bottom your life is better than your parents' life. Trying to maintain a rate of inequality when it actually falls is very, very difficult. But your question was, it's a classic question, is, is it better that everybody gets a bit more but you become more unequal? Or is it better if you see inequality narrow but everybody gets a bit less? 
Now, in terms of mental health, education results, life expectancy, and all the rest, it's better to be more equal and have a little bit less. That's what all the evidence suggests. It doesn't make you happier to have more money. If I was to give you £100 and I give you £1,000, you don't become, you actually become less happy and your £1,000 doesn't make you commensurately more happy than his unhappiness. Uh, and that's the nice thing, the great service we've done to the world in the USA and UK is we've run the experiment so you can test these things. It's no longer theoretical. Um, you would think if, if we were all rational economic people, we'd all be happy if I had a bag of money and I just threw the money out to you and some of you got a lot and some of you got a little, you think, well, that'd be great. But it actually turns out not to make people happier or better people or a better society uh, to do that. Yeah, I'm very conscious of the inequality of distribution of questioning here and I'm trying my best to, to give everybody a first shot. So the lady at the end of that row there, yeah? And um, the gentleman, is that a Brentford top? No. <laughs> with the, with the, the, red, the red hoops over there at the back. Thanks. Go ahead. Um, what do you believe is the um, biggest factor underlying the increase in neonatal mortality rates? Do you think it is the dearth of midwives because we don't, as a society, think they're important enough to pay properly? Go ahead. Um, given that the EU is a great uh, method of uh, impoverishing the bottom 99% and enriching the top 1%, if you look at the EU's uh, distribution of its funds, why do you think so many people seem to misunderstand what the EU is actually doing in terms of its redistribution of funds from everybody here to landowners and protecting factory owners? Okay. And as, you, as I'm sure you'll be aware, Jeremy Corbyn, was a great supporter of um, leaving the EU. <laughs> okay, uh, infant mortality, it began rising in 212 for the babies of the poorest mothers. So 212, 13, 14. Uh, but then in the last few years, it's, it's risen for everybody. The big rise is neonatal in the first month, and mainly in the first couple of days, um, which suggests it is more likely to be health service. Uh, the BBC more or less produced a programme which tried to claim that it was more premature births than them surviving and dying. But the rest of Europe has premature births and they live. So this doesn't, this doesn't work. And more or less really ought to be challenged on this. of why they've done it. Um, a baby in Finland is more than twice as likely, three times as likely, I think, to survive than a baby here. The, the, the amazing thing, when I was born... Uh, the infant mortality rate was 11 per thousand. It was three times higher in Portugal. Portugal was seen as the most terrible place in Europe. Uh, now you're much more likely to live as a baby in Portugal than in the UK. It is not the babies of immigrants. Immigrants are young, fit, well-educated and thin. Um, this is not, we know it's not the babies of immigrants, but the immediate thing you get from newspapers is it, it's, it's uh, immigration tourism. Um, You've only got to look at the parts of the country in which the babies are dying and realise this isn't where people actually come from other countries. Um, so that's what it looks like, but it needs to be investigated. It has not risen in Scotland. And the Scottish government have put a lot of money into care around the time of birth. So that, that's what I'm thinking about. Uh, the terrible EU. Uh, 
I would have favoured staying out of the European community in the 1970s because in the 1970s we were the second most equal country in Europe to Sweden and we're doing o we were actually doing okay. We didn't think we're doing okay, but I, I would have stayed out of the rich men's club. The interesting thing is uh, that we join, we have this huge rise of inequality, which isn't due to the EU because the EU is full of countries that have, many of them became more equal, you can measure it. Um, different countries get to choose how they distribute things in different ways. We choose to have a common agricultural policy that pays rich farmers more. You can choose to do different things with that money that's collected centrally. You don't have to do that. Um, there are different choices. The, apart from Japan, all the most equal affluent countries in the world are in the EU or, in the case of Norway, have trading relationships with it. The EU is not a wonderful thing. It is a rich man's club, it is very secretive, it is not democratic. We're just worse. Um, <laughs> Corbyn, uh, the EU needs to become much, much better. Another wonderful thing about Brexit is that you're taking the largest block of far-right MEPs, the block aligned with the alternative for Deutschland, and the Polish Law and Justice Party, the most destructive anti-social MEPs are about to leave the European Parliament, and that's our MEPs. What was keeping the EU in terms of to be most right-wing, most unprogressive, most distributive in a bad way, as you say, was British politicians and British politicians acting behind the scenes in the European community trying to make it behave in that way. And one great advantage to the rest of, of the mainland is us out means that's no longer an excuse. Keeping the British happy by looking after industry in particular ways. But we will see, but you can measure, you can measure these things. Yeah. Right, I think we've got time for a few more questions. Um, so we have a couple uh, towards the back there in the centre up, up, up on the top floor. The two hands towards the back, can we take those? And then I'll try to take... A couple more, and we've got yeah, another so five thank minutes. You. Um, I'd like to ask one more question about the EU. Um, I come from Poland, and in Poland, since we joined the EU in 2004, we had um, around two million people emigrating, mostly construction workers, but also um, young doctors. And um, at the same time, we have many doctors coming from countries like Ukraine to um, earn more than they were uh, than they would earn in their countries. And um, I have a question: Do you think that the free movement of people that is actually uh, one of the best things we think about the EU is uh, removing the incentive for politicians to work at home and actually um, improve the situation of their uh, workers. Okay, and next up, somebody nearby, yeah. Okay. Uh, my question is uh, whether, do countries consciously and individually take decisions to become much more equal democratically, or does it take a much bigger exogenous uh, event like a war or an invasion? Okay, I'll do the second one first. Uh, it takes an exogenous event. So I can draw little dots for each general election in Britain, and none of them, apart from the October 74, and that was just a reaction, um, you can't see them having an effect. Tony Blair's election in 97 didn't alter the movement of the graphs. 
Um, so individual elections are not what does it. Inequality turns rarely. And when it turns, it seems to turn for an entire generation. It's if a set of people have learnt. Uh, wars have the biggest effect. Uh, the generation after the Second World War, those above them in charge haven't just taken them to one world war. They've taken them to two world wars. You no longer respected the people who had been in charge. They were terrible. We're about to get to a situation where we won't respect the people in charge. Uh, and, and that helps. Free movement of labour, um, I think you have to measure it not in the first 10 years of it being introduced. There are better ways of introducing free movement than the way we actually did it. But if you look at the effect of free movement of labour, say on Portugal now, which used to have people coming to the fields in Britain uh, to pick fruits, it's now, you know, it's not a devastating effect on Portugal. In fact, people from Portugal are going to former Portuguese colonies in Africa um, to, to do work because they had the advantage of speaking Portuguese. I wouldn't measure the effects of free movement of labour by looking at the first few years. The one proposal I've seen, which was actually uh, evaluated by Gordon Brown, who paid the University of Southampton to model it, was, and this could happen without the e UK being in the EU, you introduce a citizen's income in the EU. You introduce it very low, say a thousand euros a year, but it's a thousand euros in Berlin, and it's a thousand euros in Poland, and it's a thousand euros in Romania. And if you do that kind of thing, the incentive not to move if you're only moving because you can't survive is less, and the money doesn't go as far uh, in those. These are the kind of things the European Union could do to steady things. There is, in general, an abandonment of rural areas going on around the world and an abandonment of peripheral areas uh, going on. The really interesting thing, you, you probably forget that between 1991 and 2001, uh, we demolished a sixth of the housing stock of Glasgow. My little boy, who was born in 2001 in Sheffield, uh, I used to take him to watch the tower blocks being blown up one after another after another in Sheffield because we had population falling in the north of England. Um, we've forgotten about that now because of the migration in. But we're likely to see population in some of these cities uh, falling again. But I, I think it's possible to argue for freedom to migrate as in general being highly beneficial. The last thing I say on it is the worldwide freedom to migrate. No country in Europe is at anywhere near fertility replacement level or has been since the 1970s. So we, we don't produce enough children uh, to restaff our towns and cities. We're going to require migration from outside of Europe simply to, to survive in future. When somebody migrates from somewhere like Morocco to somewhere like Italy, they tend to have about half a child more than the average family in Italy, but they have half a child less than the average family in Morocco. So the more migration you have in the world, which tends to be in that direction, the faster world population stops rising. So migration helps reduce global population. And this generally isn't understood. Uh, the highest fertility rate we have anywhere near Europe is in the Gaza Strip. 
because if you put a wall around people and lock them in, they have more and more babies. We're all out of time. Um, I, I hope Danny's prediction that inequality is going to fall is right. Certainly if it does, his exhortations might have something to do with it. I hope uh, this uh, fantastic talk and discussion has uh, given you food for thought. And if you care about inequality, that you go out and think about what you can do to, to, to reduce it. The LC event staff will confirm for me, I think there are books outside, is that right? So if you want to buy a copy of the book, um, they are stacked up outside, and I believe Danny is happy to sign them if you bring them in here uh, up onto the stage. So thanks very much to everybody for coming, and thanks to Danny for the, for the talk.